Enrollment is open for Thomas's upcoming six-session live online course, Navigating the Levels of Trauma Healing. Explore how to work with the impacts of collective crises and challenges and learn tools to manage anxiety, overwhelm, and nervous system dysregulation during times of accelerated change and disruption. In this all-new curriculum, Thomas and expert guest speakers will engage in ecosystemic practices to collectively explore our resilience, agency, and capacity to stay present and find deeper meaning. Click the link in our show notes to learn more and enroll. Or go to www.navigatingthelevelsoftrauma.com. Welcome to Point of Relation with Thomas Hubel, a podcast that illuminates the path to collective healing at the intersection of science and mysticism. In his conversations with visionaries, innovators, artists, and healers, Thomas invites guests into a relational experience that allows inspiration and innovation to emerge. This is The Point of Relation. The following interview was recorded during a previous Collective Trauma Summit, an online gathering convened annually by Thomas Hubel to share ideas and inspire action for healing, individual, ancestral, and collective trauma. Visit CollectiveTraumaSummit.com to listen to featured talks from our most recent summit and sign up to be the first to know when the next summit is announced. Joy Harjo has written nine books of poetry, as well as a memoir entitled Crazy Brave, which won several awards, including the Penn USA Literary Award for Creative Nonfiction and the American Book Award. She co-edited two anthologies of contemporary Native women's writing. She is the recipient of the Ruth Lilly Prize from the Poetry Foundation for Lifetime Achievement, the 2015 Wallace Stevens Award from the Academy of American Poets for Proven Mastery in the Art of Poetry, a Guggenheim Fellowship, the William Carlos Williams Award for the Poetry Society of America, and the United States Artist Fellowship. In 2014, she was inducted into the Oklahoma Writers Hall of Fame. Also a renowned musician, Harjo performs with her saxophone nationally and internationally, solo and with her band, the Aerodynamics. She has five award-winning CDs of music. In 2019, Joy Harjo was appointed the 23rd United States Poet Laureate, the first Native American to hold that position. She lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Welcome back to the Collective Trauma Summit 2020. My name is Thomas Hübel. I'm the initiator and organizer of the summit. And I have the great privilege and pleasure to sit here today with the United States Poet Laureate, uh, Joy Harjo. Welcome, Joy, to our summit. I'm so happy you made the time for us. It was good to be here. Mm. Like, my heart is very much, of course, with poetry and with the, the power of poetry. And, and I know you combine many aspects that I'm personally deeply interested in, that I'm also, of course, in the whole work that I do interested in, which is collective trauma, collective healing, and, and how we find the courage to 
address that which is very hard to be addressed and to set things right or to restore life, even if that means that many things need to be changed. And I think in your work also, like you, you kind of teach us through your words and through your the spirit, through your words, like how we, how we address that which is very hard to be addressed in, in, in many different ways. And, and I have some questions for you later about that, but I would um, love for you to share with us because I think your, your personal journey is also carries a lot of information like about your art and, and that you express through your art. So maybe you want to share with us a little bit, how did poetry find you and you poetry? So how did you end up finding your mission that's, that reaches so many people and brings also so much into the understanding of trauma in many ways? Well, the story of poetry in me goes back a long ways, even before I was born. And then I think of Earth as the collective trauma planet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we came here, obviously. <laughs> you know, you just look at all the pieces. We came here particularly to work on to work on this. But it goes way back. Um, I'm gonna read some I'm working on a memoir, I'm revising it, so uh, it's going to be called Poet Warrior, A Call for Love and Justice. And it addresses, it directly addresses collective trauma, certainly as a, you know, I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation. We were moved illegally by the U.S. government to uh, into Indian Territory, or Oklahoma, where I sit now. And, uh, but also it addresses certainly a certain kind of timelessness. And uh, I feel like often the, the memoir is a dialogue with, with the old ones. And I think poetry can be too. What I love about poetry and why I came to poetry, or rather poetry came to me, I was not a person of words. I was going to be a painter, but, uh, and I always sat in the back and I never spoke. But mm. so poetry, maybe because I wasn't so invested in them as someone else, you know, who was absolutely in love with words and manipulated them. I was somebody who had to learn. And maybe that's why maybe that's why I was um, chosen. I don't know that I was chosen, but maybe that's why they said when the, the spirit of poetry approached me and said, you poor thing, you need what we can teach you. You need to learn how to speak. And um, so I said, yes. And so I've been taught all this time. Mm. And what I've learned about poetry, certainly it's what I, it, it, you know, it's something, a poem, a poem can hold trauma, it can hold grief, it can hold joy in such a small space. It can hold uh, paradox, different kinds of time. And uh, it's, it's so intriguing. And yes, you build it with words and what's beyond words and what's hidden in the core of words. So I'm, I'm going to read a little bit of the opening of this memoir. And I might skip around. Well, I skip around anyway, <laughs> but it will make sense. <laughs> but what started happening is there's a couple of voices. There's the, the, the poet warrior. He starts out as girl warrior, and it starts out with her a kind of a poem before she comes to earth. And then what it's, it's really, I'll just start reading, and I'll, mm -hmm. I'll read a little bit. Mm -hmm. Girl warrior perched on the sky ledge overlooking the earth 
what turquoise green and blue garden of ocean and earth from where she could hear the winds lifting from their birthing places. She could hear where sound began. The winds carried the murmuring of lovers on earth to girl warriors ears. He was a tall, handsome man whose sensitivity was threaded with ancestral love. He came from tribal elders who had the humility and heart to lead to the most difficult striving. He was water. She came to his shoulder, her dark auburn hair made a halo for her beauty. She wrote and sang songs that called what she needed into her hands. Her heart had room for all growing things and she knew her way around a stove. She was fire. We want to share all this with a child, they whispered. The elders council dressed her spirit for the journey to enter the story to make change. They folded a map and placed it in her heart. You will forget, they told her. When you ask for our assistance, and you will, you will find us in the quiet of your heart, in the silent places of the garden. Because you are a girl warrior, you have chosen a path of many tests. You will learn how to make right decisions by making wrong ones. Those whom you love most will abandon you. Then you will find each other again. She took a breath, then she was gone. I returned to the stories that I was told that I can't seem to remember or keep straight to the telling. These are the ones I heard when I used to drive my Aunt Lois around the Creek Nation to visit our relatives, all her age and older, which is the age I am now. This was when I was in my 20s and 30s and she lived in her apartment on West 8th Street in Okmulgee before she was disabled with a stroke and was taken to a nursing home to live out the few years of her life. Every day I miss her cultural knowledge of our people, her insight and humor. I miss the stacks of historical documents and family artifacts that crowded her small apartment that told of our family's part in the forced march of our families from the South to Indian Territory or what became known as Oklahoma. These contained written accounts of family stories of bravery and justice, but left out the stories she told me of favorite black dogs, horse magic, bending time and how to avoid the places where known conjurers lived, and of the Spanish man accompanying the people on the trail who wore a diamond pin that glittered as he sat on his tall black horse. One of her paintings accompanies me through my life, the painting of a Taos Pueblo man pulling a piece of pottery out of the fire. She used to make many trips to the Southwest and was friends with many of the Pueblo people. And I am now friends with the grandchildren. When I was with her, I knew I belonged. And in this circle of belonging, I had a place in the stories. Everyone needs this kind of place, this feeling of kinship. Without it, we have lost, chil we have lost children wandering the earth their whole lives without a sense of place. Even a country, can be like a lost child because it may have no roots in the earth on which it established itself. Anyway, I go on about missing my aunt's presence and how she was a painter, an artist, a lover of the arts, and, um, and too, how she was thought of as strange because of, um, in the manner that natives are thought of as strange because they are not effusive in unknown company and about her coming to, um, I'll just read this. Anyway, when I was born, she drove the Okmogi beeline to Tulsa to see me, to bring me gifts. My mother puzzled that this aunt of my father stayed in her car and would not come in. I understand she was being respectful of my mother 
She did not know my mother or of any birth rituals on her side of the family. I am the same way. I will stand apart at the periphery watching. I might be seen as cold or shy or strange. It has more to do with the kind of sensitivity honed by experiencing an invading culture and figuring out how best to move to save your life, to continue the integrity of your personhood as a tribe and as a person within an outside system that would destroy you to gain possession of all that you own, even your soul. I am writing in an apartment in downtown Tulsa. I am using a technology of a different kind and time to make sense of where we have been and where we are going to write from memory. You might read this in a time when computers are like our typewriters or cell phones like dial phones. I can even imagine a time without words to bind or free us. Then we might not be confined to a linear memory of Earth. I was born before cell phones and computers, before the proliferation of devices installed with memory, which prompts the user to forget. I do not want to forget, though sometimes memory appears to be an enemy bringing only pain of all the times I failed. Even as some memories return my mother to me, like the dream in which she was sitting on the roof of the house in red shorts, not long after she gave birth to me, she was stunning in her youthful health. She was laughing. She was my son. I often wish I had written down everything my aunt and all the elders told me so I could have all their wisdom, their struggles, their hard-won stories right here for referral to provoke and even grow memory. Growing memories and the ability to access memory is a skill that allows access to eternity. It is within all of us. I do not have the best memory. I often tell the story, tell the circle of old ones whom I speak when I speak with them. And I do speak with those whom I love who have moved on from the earthly realm, especially when writing poetry or any kind of story or music. They remind me, here's your opportunity to practice memory. I'm not the best listener or speaker, I tell them when I start to walk away with fear, asking why I was given all this to do. Take your opportunity with grace, they tell me. You are here to learn, to walk into fear, fearless, to give what has come through us, to give, to give what has come through us, to give. That is right. I have asked my aunts, uncles, cousins, and all those with whom I sat, listened, and shared throughout this life to be with me as I write. It's a very different world within which you make stories, share, and participate. They say, too many words. I heard my grandfather remark, my great-grandfather remark, what is it with you and all these English words? These times were predicted, a time in which the birds would be confused about which direction to fly to migrate, a time in which the sun would darken with pollution, a time in which there would be confusion and famine. In these kinds of times, we are in great danger of forgetting our original teachings of who we are, and you forget the nature of the kind of world that we share and what it requires of us. In this world, they told us, you will be taught to forget you will forget how to nourish the connection between humans, plants, animals, and the elements. You will be uh, a connection needed to make food for your mind, heart, body, and spirit. You will be scattered. You were born of a generation that promised to rem help remember. All your generation was charged with this task. Each generation makes a person. You came in together to make change.
They tell me that if I'd come into their houses, sat on the porches or at the table drinking iced tea with a pad and paper and writing, instead of listening, there would have been less storytelling. I would have made myself a stranger, separating myself from the story. Too many with pens poised over paper wrote down laws that stole hundreds of our acres of, acres of our lands, that stole children, homes, and legacies. That part of our history is still going on, they said. And then, like now, they use our people for their work to divide the people and still. It will go on until they have stolen everything. They, will st they still will not be satisfied. And then those whose craving is without end will devour each other and themselves. We will still be here, and the earth and waters will be renewed once they have disappeared. Life never goes in a straight line in our native communities. Time moves slower. Someone would ask us to sit down and eat, or another cousin would go in the back room to get the medicine we needed, their gnarled brown hands carefully folding the top of the paper bag with roots who had creek names and songs, or someone would tell a memory that would bring everyone together in tears, and the memory of someone past would rise up in that song. They all agreed that we are being brought to a place where we will once again know how to speak with animals. We will once again come to appreciate the many families of plants, animals, and elements. We will once again know our humble place as two-legged humans for all our human beings. Humans are not the only ones with a consciousness. And besides, they laugh. If you hadn't written everything down, you would have been able to. You wouldn't have been able to read your own handwriting anyway. We sure we sure couldn't read anything you wrote down. We laughed. We always laughed, even about the worst. That's when we laugh hardest. And they added, "We are telling these stories for each other, not to be put in a book." However, times have changed. We are always changing. And then the girl warrior's voice comes in. The old ones opened the ears of girl warrior. This is before she comes to earth, tweaking the frequency before she left on her mission. We are sending you, they said, to learn how to listen. There is good in this world. There is evil. There is no story without one or the other. You will be gravity and feather. Send each story to the heart. Every word before you speak to know the truth of anything. And then it goes into these historical accounts of my uh, great-grandfather, who is uh, six generations, who is often with me. And um, then there was another little piece I was going to read. I'll read this. A family is essentially a field of stories, each int intricately connected. Death does not sever it. Rather, the story expands as it continues unwinding interdimensionally with a single integrity of architecture. Manahui was with us as we spoke because speaking woke up a memory. He was with us in dreaming, even though he had passed as an old man in Indian territory. I am here speaking with you now, even as you were there. I am here even as I might be in the hereafter years later from you being here now in this word field. When we look at the sky, we are seeing the future because it is so far away. The scientists would argue you cannot see the future because it is not happening yet. Many versions, many versions of futures are, of possible futures are happening. Yeah, excuse my little, it's good to read out loud. I haven't gotten to the read. There's a final time when I'm writing something in revision where I read the whole thing out loud. So I heard some revisions I needed, but that's, I wanted to start with that. 
That's amazing. It's amazing. Like one thing that even before you uh, started to read, there's something that stayed with me. I want to come back to for a moment. And there were so many points I could relate to now. Um, but you said something, I think that's um, rare. And it's, it's about poetry being your teacher and allowing ourselves to be taught. And because a lot of our postmodern culture is built on, on what can I get and who am I and how am I seen, but in order to be taught by something or someone or by kind of a, kind of a spiritual lineage, um, it, there is something in us that, there's a precondition we need to create in ourselves to be taught. And I want to, because it, it stayed with me, it's very, it touched me when you said, okay, like this, like poetry is, is in a way you're, you're teaching, your own teaching. And, and can you speak a little bit about that? Because that's, first of all, it touches me because it's beautiful. It's very, it's deeply grounded in a spiritual kind of dimension. But there's something about, maybe you can share with us a little bit how poetry taught you and how you made a space in yourself that can be filled by poetry. Well, that's a long story. I wrote <laughs> my first memoir is a little bit about that called um, Crazy Brave. Harjo, the name Harjo is a Muskogee word that means so brave you're crazy. So I guess I'm joyfully so brave you're crazy, but I don't think I'm that brave. I don't, how poetry taught me, well, it's, it's not a past tense, it's a, it's not even past, present, or future tense. I don't know if there isn't such thing in any language for an ongoing tense that is timeless. Mm -hmm. But um, it has something to do with, I mean, it's really, it's about listening. Maybe any, any uh, field of endeavor or, uh, is really, it's really about learning how to listen. And maybe they picked me because somebody made a bet and said, she's, she's the worst listener. We're going to see what we can do with her. And they're laying bets to see what happens. And, uh, but it's, it is about listening. So it really is a, like these old ones. I mean, you can hear them. I think that's what, when you go into that space of creation, which is also the space of, of healing and, and energy and, and so on, that's when the realms open up or that's when, you know, that's when I, you can call it possibility or the land of miracles or, 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 um, awe or it could even be terror, but that's when the, that awareness opens up. Mm. So to take the time to sit and, and to be in poetry and writing it, one, you don't know where you're going. Mm -hmm. At least I don't. I can't write a poem and say, say, okay, I know where I'm going. I know how it's going to work because that does away with the journey. And you might go at it knowing that there's something you need or you're, there's something that is bothering you or there's a sound or something, and then you, you follow it. Yeah. And so every poem is a kind of teacher, and that's your own or even, or even reading or experiencing somebody else's. I mean, every, every poem is a kind of ceremony, if you think about it. Uh, it starts, there's an opening. Yeah. You know, there's a doorway, even before you get to the first line or the title. I didn't realize titles were so important until 
I was in a, teaching a workshop and we just were not getting the student's poem. We were puzzling over it. And then I covered the title and it all fell into place. But the title or the first line is kind of the doorway. Okay, it says, okay, here you are. You approach the doorway and this is where we're going to start. And then each phrase, word, line, it, it, there's an accumulation maybe even dispersal. It depends on how the poem works. And not everything works towards um, the usual model of, of uh, you know, a, climactic, a, a climactic climb, a climb to a climactic point and then a descent. There's different kinds of story shapes. But, you know, you, by the time you get to the end of the poem or the end of the story, you know, the, the last line tells you, you know, gives you that place you can step out from. It's kind of a step. So that every poem is you enter into a space and sometimes it works as a piece of art, sometimes not, but you're going into that. And so it teaches you, you hear, you always hear, I always hear fiction writers saying, oh, well, my characters are alive and I hear them. And I understand that because the same thing happens in poetry. Mm. It just, it's um, just rendered in a different kind of way. It's amazing, very beautiful. And it also um, speaks deeply to me, to my experience of running groups and uh, and doing those healing processes, also just collective trauma processes. It's, it's, it's pretty much the same as you described it. It's like you, I never prepare a group or a workshop. It's kind of going in and, and it's, it starts to become what it becomes. And I think that's a very beautiful and powerful space. I'm so happy that you're describing this and also so elaborate and eloquently. So, and, and, um, and when you, you, you said something about like the, the ancestors as an alive uh, presence in mm -hmm. your life. And, and when we look at trauma, you know, since it didn't start with us, since we came into a field of trauma that exists for a long time, like the, the the healing dimension of the ancestral piece since the no one one symptom trauma creates is that it creates a sense of separation i'm separate from my past i'm separate from nature i'm separate from you i'm separate from you know spirit maybe whatever this kind of isolation bubble but then uh like including the wisdom and the resilience or the, the the power of life that has healed itself so often already plus the hurt that is in our ancestry. Maybe you can speak a little bit, how is that in your experience and also how is that in your um, poetry? Yeah, so I guess the, the, fir the first premise would be that yeah, the, their one memory is alive. It is not past, present and future. Two, that the ancestral, there is an ancestral field. It's not, it's a, it's a, it's a living field. And I came to know this because I was a teenage mother. I had my, my first granddaughter just turned 30. Mm -hmm. I was in my thirties when she was born. I have great grandchildren. And so I have watched how, and then I've been in touch even through, um, you know, being alive with some of my ancestors and then knowing them through them coming to me. So I see, you can, you start to see this immense field with all of these kinds of connections. And not all ancestors, sometimes we, I think we make the mistake of uh, putting all ancestors in this field of adoration or 
um, acknowledgement that they don't all mean well, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> they're still working out. It's an active field. So they're still working through things. Some of them, some of them don't change, just like here. Some of them are into making trouble. And uh, so it's a very dynamic, it's a very dynamic field. It's not like a lot of the new age feel like, you know, everything is, you know, this is, we're in a place, this is, um, we're in a, a story making place. You can't have story without conflict. I've wondered what humans do, you know, why, why human beings, what use are they on earth? You know, you can see what trees do and what all, you know, everybody has their jobs. Well, what jobs do human, humans have to maintain a biological um, integrity? Instead, you know, I don't know. I, I thought the only thing I could come to is that humans, we're, we make stories. <laughs> you know, that's what motivates it. We go out and make stories. And, you know, and in the end, it's about making connections. You know, really, that, that it's, in the end, I think what satisfies, maybe when you're writing a piece of music or writing a poem or a story, it's ultimately even that you can have disjunctures and, and um, discord that you have to come at some point, there has to be some kind of connection. When I, I lived in Hawaii almost uh, 12 years, and I studied with... Um, a Lomi Lomi spiritual healing teacher, and she taught us Ho'oponopono, which is a Hawaiian healing technique. And just like poets, there's all kinds of poets, people teach Ho'oponopono in very different ways. And uh, it's really about making a connection. And it really does acknowledge that we are inside this ancestral field, so that if you go towards the healing of a person, it's not just that person. It has to do with that person's ancestor, you know, maybe the circle of relatives around them in contemporary time. But there are, it's almost like there are different holographic levels to it. And so that healing works at those levels. Mm -hmm. And um, I also learned by being around her that it's good to be around people who know. Well, I've learned this early on. I always like to be around people who know more. But to be around her energy, it always heightened my energy, and I got to assist her in a Ho'oponopono and on a, a, a workshop in Alaska, and I was standing with her, and we had a circle of participants around us, and uh, they were asking, you know, what is it you need to let go? We were doing it as a group, not as an individual. What is it you need to let go? So we did a ceremony to cut that. But behind, for a moment, I saw what she saw, and I saw behind people I could see ancestors i could see you know a father who had just passed on i could see and they were in tears i mean they they were carrying this grief and this pain some of it that had come yeah from generations some had been from you know the guilt something directly you know but it, it, it linked there were so many links and there were people you know it was something that if it let, was let go here it would be let go and not infect you know, not infect generational lines, and it would relieve, say, the spirit of your mother, for instance, or relieve even a piece of part in a land which has a spirit that has been offended or needs some kind of bringing back or into the circle of memory. Uh, very beautiful, very beautiful. And also the holographic dimension of the, of the ancestry as it's alive in us today. 
And I think that speaks to a beautiful reconciliation that is uh, often needed in the in our world today where we feel so separate and isolated as individuals and we see oh we are actually it's it's about this field so that it's very beautiful and um and um so when we when we look at um language i mean you're kind of representing uh, like a power like the power of poetry and 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 words but poetry also has the 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 function of creating a fluidity so like trauma usually creates these frozen hostages in time and and uh, and lang- and and also that i believe that in the regular language in our daily language like trauma has been encoded and agreed on as a kind of a new normal and that makes it kind of locked and and i believe that that uh, poetry has the power to slowly unlock that through the the fluidity that it can create and i wonder if you can speak a little bit to the power of like how poetry affects us and affects also this 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 field of language that is actually like our data transfer but it's it's much more than that it's it's not separate from us so we are living as that field maybe you can speak a little bit to the the power of poetry and the creating more opportunities possibility fluidity healing i guess where you would have where you want a starting place would be looking at metaphor and speaking in a way in which metaphor you know metaphor opens up it's like you can have a door a concept and i mean and suddenly there instead of one door there are many doors to meaning and a phrase mm-hmm. and our languages you know used to and even english i think is like that that people used to speak more in metaphor mm-hmm. i've been around a lot of the language people in hawaiian language and muskogee our own language and in navajo language i worked for for a navajo language place early on for a little while as a photographer, I've done all kinds of jobs. I worked pumping gas at a gas station years ago. I worked in hospitals, etc. So yeah, metaphor. So anyway, I worked. I you know I worked around some language people, and what everyone has what said in every circle, in every language circle, is that in English, too, is that we've lost our sense of metaphor. And when I think of metaphor, I think of poetry. I think of how you can be here and there at the same time. I think of how you can hold grief and beauty in the same line. I think of how you can hold even togetherness and separateness in the same place so that both of them find a way, find a place to sit across from each other and talk even in a moment. And because of our devices and, and cell phones and the texting, we've, we've gone to a more literal way of speaking. And um, so I thought, to okay, to a li- more literal kind of speaking, I was trying to think of a really um, good metaphor. But the poem I was going to read doesn't really, it's not really built on metaphor necessarily, except yes, the whole poem is in a way. 
It's called, I'm going to read this morning, I pray for my enemies. And I guess I've seen poetry too as a way of maybe every poem, even if it's more a narrative in tone, can be even a metaphorical construct that can hold um, where a town in stress, in racial stress, can um, find, um, have a moment in a poem where people are speaking with each other, where they, they are not speaking on the streets of a town. And uh, this is called This Morning I Pray for My Enemies, which of course brings up the question, who's praying for their enemies? Why are you doing that? Why are you empowering? But it's not really about that. And I didn't know what the poem is going to be. I, um, I, I just followed it. This morning I pray for my enemies. And whom do I call my enemy? An enemy must be worthy of engagement. I turn in the direction of the sun and keep walking. It's the heart that asks the question, not my furious mind. The heart is the smaller cousin of the sun. It sees and knows everything. It hears the gnashing even as it hears the blessing. The door to the mind should only open from the heart. An enemy who gets in risks the danger of becoming a friend. Mm. So I often see the mind and the heart as very separate. The mind, the mind can be easily fooled or easily, it's always, it's very logical. And it thinks it's very smart. It can think of it the more it knows, the more literal knowledge it knows, the bigger person it is. And, uh, but it's nothing. That kind of mind, if a mind is disconnected from the heart, then you have massacres. Then you have, uh, then you can lock children, take children away from their parents at a border and um, not think, you know, you can think them away. But with the heart, you know, with the connection, it's very powerful. It becomes something else. So that's kind of at the root of it. Yeah. And then in Muskogee, Muskogee and culture philosophy, yeah, the heart is it's related to fire, to fire power, and uh, which is kind of an intuitional power too, with the ability to roam much farther than the mind and deeper. It's beautiful how you said it, the, the smaller brother of the sun. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's lovely. It's also like a gateway and the door. And I, mm -hmm. and I heard you speak also about the heart, like the heart being the place where, in a way, the knowledge resides, the bigger knowledge. But then it's also when we come into life, we start forgetting that. We start forgetting that in the first years of our childhood. And, and maybe we in a good way, we rediscover that knowledge. Maybe you want to speak a little bit to that process because um, I, I love the way how you you frame that the knowing and the forgetting while we come into this life. Uh, to speak about the process, how do you mean the process of... Yeah, that when we, when we you speak about they sent me here, Mm -hmm. And uh, they tweak the frequencies. That's a that's a knowing from before mm -hmm. we were here or we are here. It's not really before, but let's for now let's call it that way. But the this 
this landing process that there is a, a knowing uh, from before our existence here as as the ones that we are now and there is a there's often a forgetting a process of forgetting that so we become very identified with who we are and and what we do and the story of this life but there's a, a bigger knowing and so when i listen to you there is an access to that to that bigger knowing the way you speak and uh and so maybe you can speak a little bit to this remembering of, of the deeper context, because for many people that might not be a reality that they have access to or feel, same as you spoke about your ancestors and you, you saw them standing in the, in the room. Uh, that's, I think, for some people, that's a reality for other people that stays hidden. And yet I think it's part of everyone. It depends on how you've been. If you if you come up in a society that is where that you know it's considered natural, I think it's different. But often we're taught, you know, we're taught to only to bend our ears in a certain kind of way so that we only accept a certain, you know, so that we don't listen. Mm -hmm. But I think everyone. You know, everyone has moments of knowing, of knowing everyone. I mean, I think if people were to sit down and to break it down and think, oh, okay, how did I know this? How do I know or understand? You know, there's things we're taught, but there's things that if you go back to your childhood consciousness, which is more wide open at that point, everyone has those kinds of experiences of, of knowing or being aware that they're they may not have even thought about it. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily see. I mean, seeing is a frequency, and there are certain ranges of frequency. And, and um, I think it opens up when you dream. It opens up in certain kinds of spaces. And then you can close it down. You can close it down with fear. You can also decide not to. Um, but, yeah, I understand in a world in... Um, De, you know, in a Descartes world, there's definitely, you know, there's a separate, there's a separation. There's the physical, the world of the material, and that is the world. And then there's the world of, um, you know, the rest of it is imagination, but it's all imagination. All of it is. It's a living, there's a living world. You can prove it scientifically, you can prove it with frequencies. And, and so on. You can, you know, it can. Um, so, and, and for me, poetry, I mean, that's what, I think that's what drove me towards poetry, too, because I could feel, I mean, I could hear, you can hear the voices of, voices from history. You can hear the, the sense of the poet, but you can also sense of the poet's uh, atmosphere and 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 uh, the time they were living in and that kind of a field of consciousness that comes to fruition or comes to bear that opens up it opens up in your time you know in you in the time when you pick it up and read it like when I was a child and picked up Emily Dickinson's I'm nobody who are you and you are nobody too well that makes two of us how, and, and to read that poem, you know, she was in, uh, in um, 
living in New England and Massachusetts at a time when my people were being removed from our homelands. And yet her voice spoke to me as an eight-year-old child. And it spoke to me about something that was very profound and deep, a sense of being, yeah, it made a connection with loneliness. It's like, yes, I, I feel alone. I feel I can see things, I feel things, and yet I have to be silent. You know, I feel my parents' pain. You know, I'm part of their pain. You know, I feel this earth. I feel this, um, I watch the suffering. I'm part of this suffering. And uh, yet I, am, I feel so alone. And I have no voice because I am too young or because I, I have no words to speak what I can see and feel and hear. And then here you are, a poet from far, far away, a whole different culture and place, but you're speaking with me out of the darkness and out of the silence. That's the power of poetry. And if you can read that poem and hear it, then you think, oh, okay, there's the knowing. <laughs> you know, there it is. Right. Very beautiful. Right. right. And, um, and in your book, uh, An American Sunrise, you relate to, to the trauma of your people. And uh, but maybe you can speak a little bit deeper. What what's the 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 inspiration and and what spoke to you in giving birth to to that uh, the content of your book? I had taken a job in our homelands, mm -hmm. and um, my my particular family come, lines come from Alab what's now known as Alabama and down near more near Columbus, Georgia. But we were in I took a job in Knoxville, Tennessee for a few years so we because we were closer and we were driving around and there was so much that happened. One time we we were driving and we went around this little road around the corner and you could just hear the the feel and hear the grief and it turned out to have been a meeting place before the Trail of Tears where people were called to gather and then take everything they could carry or marched out and, you know, so there was a lot of that. There were places, I even found a home that belonged to my uncle who used to have many houses. At one point he was the, he had the biggest racetrack, horse racetrack <laughs> in the Eastern seaboard. But um, a lot of people don't see us that way. They think that we were just uh, naked and, and idiots in the woods and, and then, um, And then we were moved because we, we weren't civilized enough to know what to do with the land. But my question is, who is civilized? You know, who is civilized here? Does having a gun, you know, and a militia make you civilized? Does having more money make you civilized? Does uh, belonging to a certain religion make you civilized? So I was thinking about all of those questions and it, and it was so ironic to, we were getting ready to leave that place that was, you know, in our homeland area to go back to a place we had been moved from. And I thought, what a terrible irony this is. And what do I do with it? And I remember standing and looking out at the trees and then my spirit asked, what did you learn here? And that's, That's when I started writing American Sunrise. 
And uh, do you want to share with us a few uh, aspects of what you've learned? What, uh... Oh, I'm always learning, but I guess what, one thing I learned is that history is speaks. History is people. History is stories. History includes the trees. You know, it includes the earth, the place things happen. It's um, it includes the water. Um, it it doesn't end. You know, it doesn't end. The stories, aspects of the stories are still in in these places. Mm. And um, so. I learned that, I mean, you can, I don't know that you can ever put history to rest. I think it goes back to something we were talking about earlier about, and I kept thinking of the word, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but I kept thinking about, it's the word allow. I heard that or read that in, or someone said it, but if you allow something, and even the sound of the word with the A, A, Loud, oh, the vowels. So the, the vowels enable you to to move emotionally. It's water. It's like the Hawaiian language is mostly vowels. <laughs> That's because there's you know there's so much water. And so if you think about the word allow, it's kind of what it is. Onomatopoeic. It's kind of what it says. So if you allow, if you allow history, if you allow it, then it can be. It doesn't then it cannot overtake you. It can't destroy you. You're not putting up a line of judgment or saying it's this or it's that. It's just like, okay, history, you be history. And I'll even sit here with you. Sometimes I have to do that with something I can't have. I'm having our agenda that I can just pull up the chair. Okay, history, you can sit there and we'll sit here. And maybe there's nothing to say. Maybe at this point, we don't even have words. We can't even, we can't even go to poetry because there is no way, you know, maybe there's some things that poetry or humans, we, we cannot hold these things. We do not have the, the comprehension. We have not grown to the kind of immense understanding to be able to understand the why of such degradation. And so sometimes you just have to say, okay, just sit here and allow. Because even if you don't allow, it's going to be there. But to allow, at least I found, gives a kind of peace. Doesn't mean I agree with it. Doesn't mean um, that I will continue to have some argument with it. But it means for a while that it is not overcoming me. Yeah, that's very strong. Like allowing, like because so much of the history is kind of split off or fragmented and we don't mm -hmm. allow it to be here. And and just the the the, the motion of allowance is is coming into a relation. Like even if it's sitting here, it's already it's it's here, and mm -hmm. we know that it's here. Even if it can't move yet, or if it's frozen, or or muted, as you said. Mm -hmm. And in my work, like I, 
I sometimes say that the the deepest pain that we suffer is the one where there are no cameras. It's not being seen. It's hidden. It's muted. It has no voice to speak. And that's why the care of, of all of us that have enough resources to look out for this, like to be aware or at least be open to find the pain that is not speaking anymore mm-hmm. uh, is very important. It's a function of, of I think, a, a growing consciousness is, is, is coming with that function of becoming aware of the part that doesn't speak anymore for itself. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I, w- I would love to, to hear a little bit about how, how you find poetry. Maybe sometimes, as you said, there is only silence, but maybe poetry is a word to give a voice to that which cannot be spoken with regular language. Maybe also visual art or you know other art, music, other arts. Um, I would love to hear some of your thoughts or responses to them. Of course, I always think of the painting by Picasso, the Guernica. You know, I mean, how do you express massacre? And you think, why do you express massacre so that it can no longer hold? Uh, Continue, so that it can no longer continue to destroy in, in waves of historical trauma through a people. I mean, we've dealt with historical trauma. That's what's going on here in the U.S. right now, is these waves of historical trauma that have not been dealt with, that were put into place of the founding of the country. You know, once you have these great ideas, mental great ideas that are, and then to, to enact them, there's mass, you know, you massacre and enslave. So how do you put that together? So the wound, um, you know, the pain that doesn't speak is being spoken. And then what do you do with that? And how do you move from there collectively and as a, and as a person? And that's where we come to ceremony or to, um, you know, ways, ritual to put things, you know, even storytelling rituals. You know, what you're going to the movies is kind of, <laughs> a lot of people are involved in these storytelling rituals by watching Netflix during the pandemic. You know, how do you move past or how do you move through? I guess that's not move past because it's, you have to move through it. You know, I think a lot of times we try to go around it, but right now we have to go through it. And we have to go through it and listen. That's the hardest thing. Because then we come into um, the presence of the worst parts of ourselves. But I I wrote a poem. I'm going to read this poem called... um, Because I've, I've, I've thought about that, about how we lose parts of ourselves and... You know, in this country, you know, this country, um, I think of the country as a kind of person. So this poem is called, For Calling the Spirit Back from Wandering the Earth and its Human Feet. And I think of how we can all get lost. We can get lost in corners of pain, in corners of history, that, you know, in corners of time, and be destroyed. You know, and, and then... Uh, 
how do we find ourselves? So I tried to put a kind of put a ritual in a poem. Put down that bag of potato chips, that white bread, that bottle of pop. Turn off that cell phone, computer, and remote control. Open the door, then close it behind you. Take a breath offered by friendly winds. They travel the earth gathering essences of plants to clean. Give it back with gratitude. If you sing, it will give your spirit lift to fly to the stars' ears and back. Acknowledge this earth who has cared for you since you are a dream planning itself precisely within your parents' desire. Let your moccasin feet take you to the encampment of the guardians who have known you before time, who will be there after time. They sit before the fire that has been there without time. Let the earth stabilize your post-colonial insecure jitters. Be respectful of the small insects, birds, and animal people who accompany you. Ask their forgiveness for the harm we humans have brought down upon them. Don't worry. The heart knows the way, though there may be high-rises, interstates, checkpoints, armed soldiers, massacres, wars, and those who will despise you because they despise themselves. The journey might take you a few hours, a day, a year, a few years, a hundred, a thousand, or even more. Watch your mind without training. It might run away and leave your heart for the immense human feast set by thieves of time. Do not hold regrets. When you find your way to the circle, to the fire kept burning by the keepers of your soul, you will be welcomed. You must clean yourself with cedar, sage, or other healing plant. Cut the ties you have to failure and shame. Let go of the pain you are holding in your mind, your shoulders, your heart, all the way to your feet. Let go of the pain of your ancestors to make way for those who are heading in our direction. Ask for forgiveness. Call upon the help of those who love you. Call your spirit back. It may be caught in corners and creases of shame, judgment, and abuse. You must call in a way that your spirit will want to return. Speak to it as you would a beloved child. Welcome your spirit back from its wandering. It may return in pieces and tatters. Gather them together. They will be happy to be found after having been lost for so long. Your spirit will need to sleep a while after it is bathed and given clean clothes. Now you can have a party. Invite everyone you know who loves and supports you. Keep room for those who have no place to go and make a giveaway. And remember, keep the speeches short. Then you must do this. Help the next person find their way to the dark. Amazing. And they will be happy to be found after such a long time. Mm. Being lost, that's lovely. Like many... Many, um, many parts of uh, what you share with us right now is are so congruent with the way I see healing happening and like trauma healing happen. It's very beautiful, and it's it's the fluidity that comes with it is very beautiful. It's a lovely invitation. Joy, if there if there's anything you would love to leave our listeners with it can be the poem that you shared right now but if there's anything anything on your heart that 
you would love to share with us before we before we finish here this session i mean which i deeply enjoyed um, yeah i do too yeah i think that's a, the poem is a good place to end but maybe you know since i'm in the middle of working on this memoir i'll call call it's going to be like i think i said i think i said already poet warrior a call for love and justice which will be out next september is that it ends with a dream i had and it was one of those waking dreams and there i was holding my great granddaughter seven generations i was going to bring her into the world and i'm looking at her and i think wow she looks japanese <laughs> and i think she looks like her my daughter like i said you look like your great 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 you know i guess it would be six anyway you look like my brain and uh, I walked, I helped bring her spirit into the world, just as I was brought into the world that happens at the very beginning of the memoir. And I guess I will leave with that because, you know, this world, you know, we're making, you know, we are, I think, you're, you really come into, coming into this world, you're coming into basically a healing ceremony. From beginning to the end. Very powerful. And I want to let yeah. this be the perfume of our ending here. It's very beautiful. It's so lovely. I, I mean, I could listen to you <laughs> hours. It's it's a really beautiful. Also, the transmission that comes with your words and with your readings and poems. It's very beautiful. And I and I deeply appreciate the, the sensitivity that I feel when you speak and, and in your being, this high level of, you know, uh, sensitivity and awareness is very beautiful. And I know it's sometimes not so easy to to live it, but it's it's for me it feels like a great gift that you bring to us. And also the, the beautiful description of the interrelatedness of everything, like how everything relates to everything and it's it's one being. That came across very strongly. Yeah, that's you. what they teach me. I yeah, I've learned that through them and through poetry, through those teachers. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had some good, more incredible teachers on earth, but they, uh, you know, it's sad you get to an age and most of them are gone. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. That's the that's the hard part. The other part of it is, you know, at least I had them, and then here you are. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. looking into eternity yeah that's right that's so beautiful joe thank you so much for making thank the you. time for us and it's a, a great great uh, contribution to the summit so great well it's great speaking with you mm -hmm. likewise very much so okay thank you <laughs> thank Take you care. visit collectortraumasummit.com to listen to more talks like this one and to sign up and be the first to know when the next collector trauma summit is announced Thanks for listening to Point of Relation with Thomas Hoover. Stay connected by visiting our website, pointofrelationpodcast.com, and by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a positive rating and review, and share about us with your community on social media. Thank you. We appreciate your support.